Today is Wednesday. It's November 15th, 2023, and it's 2.45 in the afternoon. We've been chatting so much before this recording, we got to start recording. Hi, I'm John Williams, and this is the Mincing Rascals podcast, portions of which are broadcast on WGN Radio some Saturday nights. You can hear me weekdays on WGN from 10 to 2. I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. I'm Marge Halperin, a political commentator, writer, activist, and strategist. I'm Kate Plies, former Chicago reporter, current uh, proprietor of the strange uh, website, Roseland Chicago 1972. I'm Eric Zorn, the proprietor of the Picayune Sentinel, your home on Substack for Chicago-based punditry and comedy. We got a lot of ground to cover today, gang, so let's get rolling. In the Sun-Times this week, Dan Mielopoulos and Tom Shuba wrote about the civilian-led police oversight panel. This board voted unanimously Monday to approve a new policy that would ban Chicago cops from active participation in hate and extremist groups. The article said the Community Commission for Public Safety and Accountability will keep private the list of banned organizations. In fact, we spoke today to the president of the commission who said that there really isn't a list at all. Hate groups come and go, the names change, a list of groups banned, he said, wouldn't be as instructive as a description of what would not be tolerated in a police officer. In general, he said officers cannot be part of organizations that use force to deny others' rights, achieve ideological goals, or advocate for systemic illegal prejudice, oppression, or discrimination. The policy will prohibit officers from being members of groups that seek to overthrow, destroy, or alter the form of government of the United States by unconstitutional means. The panel won't determine the fate of officers so charged. A judge likely would do that. We're told, though, that it will beef up the language to which officers will be held accountable. And I must tell you, my listening and texting audience was skeptical about this. I thought that the idea was good. You don't want a police officer and proud boys, but now what are you going to do about that? But my listener said things like, what about some religions? There are anti-LGBTQ religions. Somebody said, what about freedom of association? Who decides what is hate? What about firemen and lawmakers and other city officials? Should not they be held so accountable? And someone said, are defund police groups hate groups? Others asked about Black Lives Matter or the NRA, and the list goes on. Whew, what a headache. Well, my my first reaction is, what a great idea. And then I start to try to think it through, and I get to the point where a lot of your listeners are, which is like, who decides what a hate group is? Now, there's some fairly obvious ones to me, the you know the Proud Boys, the Klan, uh, and, and those kind of <clears throat> organizations. But but then there's a, there are lots of, of organizations that would that may hold political positions that are anathema to me and maybe anathema to most of the citizens in Chicago, but are not so far out of the mainstream that they would be considered hate groups. It, it comes down to the same sort of problem we have when we try to define hate rhetoric or hate speech, uh, that, that is, it is such a, a difficult concept to actually define where, where you draw the line. So I think that you need to base something like this more on actions than you do on membership or association. That that's uh, Unless these groups are committing crimes or advocating criminal activity, where do you draw the line? I think it's really difficult. Yeah, what was interesting is that this all arose because of some, some really good reporting that tied the officers who were members of these organizations to actual mistreatment of Chicagoans, right? And that to me, seems like, to Eric's point, what you would actually want to target and make sure that there is disciplinary measures in place for the actions carried out as a police officer. Now, of course, as a public official, especially in a department where community trust is so important, that is a real threat to effective policing if people feel as though the police department is overrun by people who who hate them, right? So there, it makes sense for there to be some rules about membership. I'm just a little bit skeptical that this measure in particular is going to do much to stop that as there already was somewhat of a similar policy in place. Yeah, they felt it didn't have enough teeth. It falls under that that vast category of the devil is in the details. And this is one of the reasons that in general, I don't really hold with the whole idea of extra punishments for hate crimes or hate speech. Either it's a crime or it's not a crime. 
and, and needs to be punished accordingly. Hate speech, uh, this is kind of the same thing. Uh, again, someone else's closely held beliefs that I don't agree with, like Eric was saying, could be, you know, religious in fact, does that count as hate speech? A good example is that I forget exactly where now, but just in the last couple of weeks, there was a jurisdiction where um, some Muslim parents were um, protesting against LGBTQ books and things being required. And uh, of course, a lot of people would consider that to be hate speech, hate-oriented, and yet it's a religious thing for them. So where are you going to draw this line? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I would say that it seems like the bare minimum that we could do is groups that are advocating for overthrow of the government by some means. That seems pretty basic. So would you say anybody that climbed the wall on January 6th that stormed the Capitol, if it, that person is determined to have been a Chicago police officer, yeah. do they lose their job? I don't know about lose the job. Maybe they were just tourists like that day. I'd like to say that. <laughs> I'd like to say that, but is that even possible? It well, seems it's possible. Like it's very low-hanging fruit, though, to say that somebody who is a police officer should not be allowed to belong to any group that specifically advocates for overthrowing, overthrowing the, government. the government by unconstitutional means. And yet, Marge, they'll say, well, I was there to support the president that day, and I wasn't turning in my badge. I wasn't looking to lose my job. I wasn't quitting. I was just saying I'm there for Donald Trump. I wanted to be part of the rally. From where I sit, I, I was going to suggest that MAGA is a hate group, but that probably would not stand currently. But, I, you know, there's one thing about overthrow of the government. I don't disagree with Kate on that. But let's not stray away from the evils of hate. I, You know, the man who stabbed a six-year-old boy because he was Muslim he clearly committed a crime. But doing it with that added layer of hating him be boy because he was a Muslim or an adult, I believe that extra charge matters. This is a well-meaning proposal, may need refinement, let the courts refine it or let the committee or the city council refine it, but I wouldn't throw it out. I think the idea in this city that is so, police relations are so heavily charged and have been infused clearly by hate uh, and dehumanizing over the years, let's make an effort mm -hmm. to call it out and purge this from the police culture, which is harmful to our city. I'd like to know what Kate's cat thinks about this. <laughs> um, just... She thinks this is keeping me from uh, nonstop petting her no matter what. Um, she, wants, she, she wants any dog owners in the police department. Yeah. To <laughs> yeah. Marge, the, the crime that you just brought up was so horrific, that, that poor little boy. But I just feel like murder, you can't get really worse than murder. I feel like that. I mean, that is just absolutely horrific. But I think as a category, I just don't know that we should be attempting to figure out people's motivations because it's fairly it's not so it's not so common that it's so obvious. It is difficult. Okay, but let me let me offer you this hypothetical. If someone goes up to like Lincoln Wood and to, to a Jewish family and spray paints a happy face on their garage door, I think that is a much less uh, form of vandalism than if they were to spray paint a swastika. Uh, and and it, it, if you acknowledge that, then you realize that this is a it's a complicated subject, a complicated thing to, to separate up because. Because you, you, you spray paint a swastika on somebody's uh, front door or their garage door, that sends a message to the whole neighborhood, and it's a, mm -hmm. it's a horrifying message versus a smiley face, which is like, yeah, some stupid kid's spray painting a smiley face. So, so it's, it's hard to say, like, it's just what they did, because yeah. both of them are just acts of vandalism, mm -hmm. but one of them is, is, I think, clearly we understand that it's much worse. Or just and, to whom and that's they did where it. The, yeah, I mean, That's because it sends a signal. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I've often thought about this and wonder what you all think. I wasn't sure that we weren't extrapolating too much from the Plainfield murder that we're talking about. Was that evidence of a hate crime or was that evidence of somebody who was so mentally unbalanced that they committed a crime for an irrational reason. There was no sense to it. You know, he was friendly with these people prior to that. We point to that as an example of how rampant 
prejudice is against Palestinians or Arabs, and I know there's plenty of it out there, but I didn't know that this was the great example of that. I thought this was the was almost a one-off. We didn't see a ramp-up of similar attacks or crimes in Chicago at that time, but we had one crazy guy attack that boy and his mother. There are many crimes that could only be committed by somebody who's mentally imbalanced. But uh, that's a different filter for the courts to decide, I think. And about the decision on these groups that police officers can or can't be part of, to me it's sort of like that definition of pornography. I can't exactly define it, but I recognize it when I see it. So I think you guys have brought up a lot of, well, what about this or that? I did too. But I think I would be comfortable, (laughs) at least in a lot of cases, going, yeah, you can't carry a gun. Because of the stuff you posted on Facebook, clearly you're in bed with the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or whatever the hell they are. And I would argue on behalf of their dismissal. It does seem like it's not right to not let people know what these groups are. Or are they saying that they're at least going to let the police officers know what this list of groups is they didn't you know i didn't ask that but that's interesting i because i specifically quoted the piece in the paper and i said it says that the list will not be made public and he said that's not true he said the point is we really don't have a list anymore because they'll change the name of the group and then we say oh wait that name's not on Mm. the list so Mm. that's why he said let's more identify the factors Mm. and not the groups per se i do think from a pure hr perspective right so like if I'm working at the Illinois Policy Institute and I want to uh, speak at something, right? Speak at a panel. There can be a a number of different ways you can lay out a policy for whether or not I should be allowed to do that, right? One is it's a case-by-case basis and your manager decides or whatever department in the police department decides. Or there's a list of groups that you cannot, you know, associate with or speak with. Or you can't do any public speaking, you know, gigs at all. What I, I do think, though, that's an important detail to point out is... You don't want anyone in public service, uh, including police officers, to not understand where the lines are and to be afraid of associating with anything for fear of reprisal. Um, that wouldn't really that wouldn't be fair to any city worker, and I don't think it would be fair to police officers. So keep going, Austin. So then, what should happen? You you have to make the standards clear. Like I I have said on this podcast, and often that the basic management of a average Portillo's restaurant is better than the Chicago Police Department. <laughs> and, this, and their <laughs> HR procedures are one of those examples. And this is certainly a case of that. I mean, there was in the consent decree, much attention paid to things like having uh, evaluations of whether officer trainings were good, having electronic records of performance reviews for staff. There are many basic management functions that can make a workplace better. One of them is clear expectations about what is expected of you. If those are unclear in any kind of work environment, it makes it a crappier job. Uh, And that's true of police officers, and it's true of this policy if it's not detailed enough for officers. Yeah, and of course, one of the issues we have here is I mean, we had policies like this when I was at the Tribune as well about where we could speak and who we could speak to, and they had to run them by managers. And it wasn't always clear, but it was sort of done on a case-by-case basis. But there was no when, – when you've got a public employee, it's quite different because there are no First Amendment issues come into play. And I think they do when you have a public employee, and, and, so, and that would be the difference. But I, I certainly agree with Austin that, that they ought to uh, – that, that it is important for police officers to – you know, the 24-7, they're representing the department. I just told you what we heard, that the names of the groups change. But I suppose if you're in the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or the, what is it, Three Percenters, uh, I, we could probably come up with a list, the, the Nazi Party of America. You should well, know. Yeah, yeah what I don't understand is like, well, if we have a list, then they'll change their names. Like, a group's going to change their name because they're on a list of the Chicago, the hate group's just going to change their name. And then why, like, then just add the new name. That seems like a very <laughs> well, obstacle. Yeah, and, and, you know, now you're the, you know, fun boys, formerly the proud boys. Well, you're still no good. You're still, you can't have that kind of fun. You know, I, I don't think that would be much of a shield. I'm not worried about that. I wonder about some kind of... um I know it's petition process somewhere you could even anonymously submit names of groups and have them say whether this is or isn't. I don't know what you're saying. Well, so like I'm thinking of joining, you know, group ABC 
uh, I could submit that to the police department and oh, ask. Have them review my, it. To the department. Is, is ABC going to be accepted? Don't tie my name to it because I haven't done it yet. And I don't want to be marked. But just let me know. Is ABC going to be okay? Right. Does this organization use force to deny rights, achieve ideological goals, or advocate illegal prejudice, oppression, or discrimination? That's a, there's a lot there, isn't it? I mean, achieve ideological goals. Who, who, what does that mean? Whose goals? And, you know, I wonder, too, if maybe the point is not what you think or believe or whose meetings you attend, but what you do. Maybe it'll be too late after the fact. We should have seen that that officer was going to treat those people unfairly because of his association with the group. But I wonder if you can have some hateful views or some prejudiced views and still be a functional police officer. I mean, isn't that what this is trying to pull out here? What was the last part that you said, the prejudice and discrimination line? What was the last part of that? Officers cannot be part of organizations that use force to deny other people's rights, achieve ideological goals, or advocate for systemic, illegal prejudice, oppression, or discrimination. I'm just Systemic, reading. illegal prejudice, discrimination. Illegal. Like, the, the police department itself is under a federal consent decree for a systemic violation of people's constitutional rights. Like, the employer is implicated in the illegal mm-hmm. action of that sort. So, like, and, which I think proves the point of, like, and... and, and that's not unique to Chicago or unique to policing. Like large organizations are are proven to have committed illegal, you know, prejudice or discrimination in many ways. So, uh, yeah, I think so. As you start pulling on the threads of this, it's it sort of seemingly becomes like a little bit meaningless. It is endemic to policing in a lot of places here and elsewhere. And also, your point about what they do, the police department and the oversight that has been in place in the past has proven woefully inadequate in enforcing uh, action against those who do things that fit those categories. You know, you're never surprised or shouldn't be surprised when the most egregious thing happens and you find out that officer has a list of disciplinary actions as long as my arm or longer. My arm's not long enough for many of them. (laughs) So I, you know, what they do is way too late. And maybe what we ought to focus on is re continuously reinforcing and improving the structure that holds officers accountable for their actions. Cause that Despite all the different incarnations, it gets a little better, but it's still not great. So make it easier to fire police officers or discipline officers, Marge? Both. And make it public. You know, what about this latest contract clause that the Johnson administration agreed to, but now wants to pull back that would allow certain disciplinary actions to happen in private? The whole problem with the police department has been a lack of transparency around discipline. So you could set up all these new criteria, clubs and organizations, but are we going to know when somebody violates it and the discipline that happens because they do? Because without that, this doesn't make any difference. This commission that passed this, this sort of policy change is a new thing. And it was started in the name of greater oversight and, and transparency and democracy. But what's happened is now we have like three or four, including the city council committees, different bodies that are some are, are supposed to somehow be accountable for police discipline. Yeah. And they're all workarounds for the basic fact that in Illinois, the collective bargaining agreement with the union trumps anything voters ever want to do. And that is true for police. It's true for teachers. It's true for city workers. And because there is not the political will to actually change collective bargaining and actually have elected represent have uh, elective representatives really decide contracts, not unelected sort of arbiters or state lawmakers uh, putting boxes around these negotiations with with government unions who fund their campaigns. We will not have a great disciplinary process because. If you take away some of those things for police, you're going to start taking them. The the fear is, oh, you're going to start taking those away for these other these other government jobs and unions are not going to abide by it. Uh, They they will not let that happen. So I I agree there's deeper issues with with discipline and you have to talk about collective bargaining when when if you're serious about police reform. It seems to me like this is what happens when you get a progressive mayor and a progressive government 
I don't know about this policy anywhere else. I'm sure there's something like it in many other cities, but Los Angeles's police commission, which was established in the wake of their consent decree, in the wake of their huge scandal of the Rodney King uh, of, 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 of Rodney King and the fallout from that, um, is really a model. And Chicago, rather than adopt that model, has kind of adopted these sort of like piecemeal fixes in the name of greater transparency and democracy that I think ultimately confuse people. Great example of this. There's one of those local police councils in the loop. And uh, I think it's three or four members. And one of the uh, people on the on the commission left and one of them, I think, needed to take a medical leave. And that commission uh, recommended to the mayor an appointment to fill the vacancy. And the mayor's office waited four months to fill the vacancy and then denied it. And now this other person's out sick. So this this body, which is set up in the name of democracy and transparency, can't even like doesn't have a quorum to even meet. So it's again, what about that's my district? Yeah, (laughs) it's a deeper story. It's a little bit of a deeper story um, because uh, there are three on the council and uh, only two people ran. This is a downtown first district. Only two people ran. So there's a vacancy. And the process is that the two people who are on can nominate people and submit the names. Uh, one of the problems, and I, uh, uh, on WCPT radio where I was yesterday, uh, interviewed, uh, Frank Chapman from Carper was a group who really advocated for the councils and helped elect many across the city. Um, and it's a frustrating process when there's a vacancy. But the, the point of them, as Frank was saying, is, and I think it was clear to all of us, these are supposed to be liaisons from the community of the police department. District one is working a little bit in the other direction, in my opinion. And the person they nominated is a former spokesperson for the Chicago Police Department. I, my question is, why did it take four months to say no to that guy? He's a great community guy. He's done a lot of great work, but that's not what the council's supposed to be. Uh, so while the mayor, again, we've talked about this transparency issue, didn't say why, doesn't have to say why he rejected the person, but t- it, why not? It's pretty clear. That's not what this council is for. Police department has their own spokespeople. We don't need the community person to have that background. So, and yet as a resident in the, in the district, I didn't know who was nominated. Three people were nominated. I don't know their names. They won't tell us their names. They won't tell us their backgrounds. There's nothing transparent in that council. So it's the mayor could have handled this a little better but the system's got some kinks that need to be worked out, which maybe was your point, Austin. Speaking of which, the Illinois Policy Institute, that's your group, Austin, dropped a, um, a report. New polling shows that Mayor Brandon Johnson has an approval rating of? 28%. 28%. And you said that that is the lowest? The lowest for an incoming mayor. So the Balandic uh, I believe uh, a writer for Chicago Magazine, it was maybe Wet Mosier, termed, deemed this the Balandic line. So famously, there is a blizzard in 1979. Mayor Balandic gets booted out by Jane Byrne in the next election, right? So after that blizzard of 1979, Michael Balandic, Mayor Balandic had a, an approval rating of 33%. And there's only been three times since then, and we looked way back for decades to find uh, records of mayoral approval ratings. There's only been three times since then anyone's gone below the land, Balandic line. One was Rahm, McDo- Rahm Emanuel after Laquan McDonald scandal. He was a 27% approval rating. Some polls had him even lower than that. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, when we polled with this same pollster in February, the month that she became third in the mayoral election, she had 27%. And today, six months after his inauguration, Brandon Johnson with 28% approval. What are the crosstabs on that? I didn't see breakouts. I saw by age. I didn't see by race. I didn't see by parts of the city, which sometimes the same as. I would love to talk about crosstabs and I actually pulled them up in advance of this. So white, 27% approve, 56% disapprove. Black, 30% approve, 42% disapprove. Notably, that is a worse black approval rating than um, Lori Lightfoot had in that February poll. Hispanic, 29% approve, 49% disapprove. Um, and by age, certainly 18 to 29 looks like he has the best at 32% approval. 
and every other age group is below that on his approval rating. And I wonder if the majority of young people are black or white or Latino. I'm just wondering if this is an artifact of the migrant challenge that we're facing, that this is that it's. It seems like the city has been overwhelmed by this and that Johnson's administration has been overwhelmed by this. Uh, that is a, these numbers are a reflection of that. Is that, is that your sense, Austin? And looking we at that? polled on actually um, issue specific approval. So we found, you know, do you dis- approve or disapprove of the way Brandon Johnson is handling the following issues as mayor? And the worst was the two, the two worst categories, I would say three were crime and public safety housing and homelessness and we termed migrant management was sort of the the last of the three issues and uh so on housing and homelessness his approval rating was 18 percent that was the lowest approval rating 63 percent disapprove um crime and public safety 21 percent approve 66 percent disapprove wow and then on the migrant issue 23 percent approve 64 percent disapprove can you, can you tell me what, what what did they approve of? I mean, because those numbers are all under all the under twenty eight percent. Yeah, is, the best was uh, infrastructure and public transit thirty one percent approve. Economic development thirty two percent. Education and schools thirty two percent. But the disapprove was greater than the approve in every even single in those way. even in those. Yeah, I'd have to agree with with Eric. I think you were making this point, Eric, that he came in kind of with this migrant issue, the almost the equivalent of a Balandic blizzard. Or Laquan. a pandemic, yeah, right. Or 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 yeah. I did still find it pretty amazing that, according to your numbers, Austin, that that Lightfoot came in with a seventy-five percent approval. That was so, craziest to go look back on. She was at seventy-five percent approval, and even after the pandemic had been going, October twenty twenty, she was at sixty-one. Still very very healthy. Yeah, yeah. So even with all that pandemic stuff, she was really up there. And here's Brandon Johnson starting so incredibly low. Yeah. I mean, the, obviously, the migrant crisis is a big, big part of that, but it still does not bode well for him. Not had a good, strong PR campaign for himself. He's been uh, obtuse. He's been uh, unavailable. I saw his press conference was broadcast on social media last week. And he did pretty well. I don't know what he's been so afraid of, um, but it, I, I think he hurt himself by not telling his story very well or at all. Yeah, well, one of the criticisms of him has been that he has not shown sort of public leadership. He hasn't grabbed the bully pulpit when it comes to the migrant crisis and calling on our better natures and so on. That that there's been some behind the scenes stuff. They're trying to make these migrant camps uh, that they're setting up and and they're, they're, they are doing some things, but it seems to be kind of behind the scenes. And this kind of situation calls for that sort of public leadership that he's really not showing that that uh, and, and that's part of where he's probably falling down. And then then when he does get up and, and is asked about some things, he ends up, you know, sort of this word salad that we talked about, I think it was, it was last week mm-hmm. that uh, Austin had posted. And then I took the trouble of transcribing everything that, that uh, he, had, he had said in response to a question from a reporter. Um, and uh, you just read it and go like, what is this guy doing? He's not, he doesn't know how to rally the troops or defend himself. He just kind mm-hmm. of was babbling. Uh, so maybe that's what he's afraid of, Marge, is he's really not that quick on his feet. Well, like I said, he did pretty well at that press conference. I I, I wouldn't be so afraid. Um, then again, I worked for uh, Mayor Daly. People thought he wouldn't <laughs> do so well verbally either. He didn't do so badly. But uh, that's what you have a team for. You prep for the questions that are coming and you think about your answers. And, you you know, some things will be off the cuff, but you can be prepared. But I think your point's a good one, Eric. Has he toured the police districts or shelters? Have we seen him with migrants? Have we seen him over uh, on the Eisenhower talking or or uh, at the site that uh, Alderman Conway is so concerned about? Has he been to the homeless sites? Has he been in the community with cameras following him? It's a PR stunt. I'm a PR person. But I think sometimes those things are illuminating. And let's see his personality because he's a very charismatic guy. And he ought to be playing up the relationship building. And I think that's part of leadership. I saw some photos in the Tribune of him at touring a police station just today. I saw those photos. And so I know it's happened at least once. But 
I remind people, you know, during during COVID, the extent to which Alison Arwady and the mayor were available on a daily or at the very yeah. least weekly basis yeah. to talk about that crisis compared to we have we, we Brandon Johnson hired a deputy mayor of immigrant, migrant and refugee rights. And her name is Beatrice Ponce de Leon. Has she given how many press conferences has that person given on the biggest? I think what everyone would agree is sort of the biggest issue of the city. I, I, you could count them on one hand. I'm not aware, actually, even of one that's been the general general availability like that. That's been such a, a terrible job of, of communication and leadership on the biggest issue facing the city. And I think that does that is reflected in its approval rating. These are community meetings, but that's a good point. Who else does the mayor share the podium with? He's not even at the podium half the time, much less, you know, and I think, you know, Kate was is a little surprised about how high Lightfoot's numbers were during the pandemic, but she stood there with Alison Arwady, who was a trusted expert. Eric, I don't want to set you off about her being fired, but because I know how you feel about that. <laughs> But uh, I support the mayor having his own team. But who is that team? We don't know any of them. We don't see that. That's a really good point, Austin. Anything else from that uh, report, Austin, before we leave it? Uh, I don't know if those are surprising numbers or not to you or or Chicago, but I I would have guessed below 50%. I didn't know that it would be as low as 28%. Some other details, and well, these will be published in the forthcoming days um, and and promoted more, but... uh, we asked an interesting question about the uh, real estate transfer tax hike uh, and gave sort of a neutral wording of that. <laughs> this is Mayor Brander Johnson's proposal. It does this to the rates. That's neck and neck. Um, sort of it's yeah. it's basically tied at baseline, which makes sense. I don't think opponents or proponents of that have really ramped up their, their spending on that issue. Um, also, and I don't know if we released this today. I don't think we did. We published, uh, we, we asked people's opinion on the Chicago Teachers Union as their profile has really risen. And it's the first time that we've seen on record that the number of people with an unfavorable opinion of the union has is above people who are favorable of the union, which was shocking to me given that in polling, it's half of it is in the name of the thing you're polling about. And they've got three things in their name that everybody in Chicago loves. Chicago, Chicago teachers, teachers and unions. And union. And the fact that they are underwater on on their favorables was interesting to me also. Any uh, explanation for that, that last one, Austin? It, I think it's a rise of their public profile in the wake of uh, them really electing one of their own and being the largest spender. Uh, I think that's there's sort of two dynamics at play. It's that it's the teachers union might be affecting Brandon Johnson's approval and Brandon Johnson might be affecting the teachers union's approval to the extent they are associated with him. Can we circle back to the real estate transfer tax since that's going to be on the ballot? And, you know, my initial reaction to that was that it's going to pass easily. It passed through the council fairly easily. And it's uh, essentially it's it's going to be billed as a tax the rich scheme and and uh, and, and again, the polling numbers are, are are going to be good for it. But when it gets down to voting, I think we may see what we saw with the uh, graduated income tax referendum a couple of years ago. And Austin and I disagreed on that uh, publicly in, in, in several forums. And it was sold r- originally and, and promoted as uh, we'll tax the rich. And ultimately, when people sat down to vote and they listened to the arguments on both sides, they rejected that. And I'm wondering if that's going to happen here, if when the arguments come out, it's going to say, well, yeah, this is sold as a mansion tax and taxing the rich, but actually it's going to trickle down to to everybody else because you're going to have to pay higher rents. And, and so this idea that it's going to help the homeless is a little bit vague. And I, I'm just guessing that we may see the same phenomenon play out, which is that this idea sounds good to a lot of people. And then when they get down and the, and the arguments are thrust at them in these in these campaigns and, and Austin goes on the stump and, and starts... <laughs> yeah. Trying to yeah. trying to thrash me in a debate about it, um, that that uh, they thought, well, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea. Well, what is your opinion a, about it, Eric? The idea that the, the, there are a couple of thresholds. One is a million dollars, and below that, they're going to say that you're 
transfer tax goes down. I'm skeptical of it. I think we do need the money for to, to for homeless services, and that's a good idea. I it seems to me that when you start lumping in six flats and even three flats and making them pay a higher transfer tax, that you're really going to be hitting the kinds of people and you're going to be discouraging housing and and so on. That if you were to be able to isolate it to say the sale of actual mansions, like single family <laughs> homes that cost more than a million dollars, yeah, yeah. I'd be totally in favor of that. Those people can afford it. Well, what's I'm a mansion? I'm not sure that when you're... That, well, I mean, let's say a house that's for more than a million dollars. Yeah, but in Chicago, do you remember the story in the paper? I think the Tribune had a picture of uh, a nice-looking home in a decent neighborhood in Chicago, but it would in nobody's imagination be uh, a mansion. Okay, a mansion may be the wrong word, but but anyone who can afford a house for more than a million dollars can probably afford to pay a little extra in transfer taxes, and that's okay with me. Uh, but but I think that when you're talking about like someone's got a three flat and it sells for a million dollars, and each each one is worth like what three fifty or something like that, mm-hmm. then you're talking about you know some basically you know middle income families that are going to be hit by it, and the point is not to hit those people. So I mean I'm going to yield the floor to Marge or Austin to talk more about this, but but uh, I, I think that it needs it ought to be refined in some ways to you know if you're going to tax the rich, you ought to make sure that it's going to be getting the rich people and not necessarily uh, you know the, the middle income and lower income people. But if you own, in your example, if you own a three flat that's worth more than a million dollars, you may live in one or none, rent those three out. It's the same equation. You can afford to pay a little higher tax, I think. There's condos worth a million dollars or more. If if you can pay that for your uh, abode, you can afford the tax. I but I but I think your your point about the campaign is well taken, Eric, because I mean, that was a Ken Griffin campaign against the fair tax statewide. And there were some very deceitful uh, ads that he paid for and that were running, you know, nonstop little old ladies who like, what about me and my taxes and Social Security? They weren't going to tax Social Security. That wasn't part of it. But she was worried about it. So people voted, again, you know. Um, so is that going to happen here? We see the Tribune already editorializing. I think that's today that, um, oh, they're selling the NEMA Tower, which is right outside my window, um, because they don't want to have to pay a transfer tax and sell it later. No, they're selling it because it hasn't been that successful, I would suspect. And uh, I, if they can sell it, they can afford the tax. I, there's going to be some of that ramping up, and I'm worried about that, but I hope people see through it. I'm seeing sort of three themes emerge in the conversation around, uh, at least on sort of the, the no side. One is that, you know, Chicago's real, real estate market, especially downtown, is really struggling, and this would be, this would hurt it. Second is, what's a mansion? Um, the, the Mr. Beef location where they filmed the bear, that would be considered a mansion under this tax. I think that's where that's appraised at $1.5 million. I don't think anyone would, would call that a mansion. Uh, and of course, the, the, the properties that will bear the brunt of this overwhelmingly are commercial properties. So it's a lot of family businesses own a building. Most of their net worth is in that building and you're really hitting them on their way out. And then finally, um, and this is going to be, I think, the most interesting part of this, you see in the black and Hispanic communities right now a true, uh, there's a wedge right now in feeling that migrants are getting more services than are the residents of Chicago. And we've seen that in polling and you see that in the people in, you know, speaking at public meetings and, and elsewhere, right? And this proposal says the hundred million or so that is estimated to come from this is going to be deposited into a fund dedicated to homelessness programs. So it's going to go into a fund that has homelessness written on it. And I think the question and the debate for those two big blocks of voters, black and Hispanic voters, is going to be, is it going to be homelessness for our communities or is it going to be homeless for migrants? And I think that that could be a very contentious part of this. I hadn't even thought about what you just brought up, Austin. I was um, thinking that I'm a little bit skeptical of it because I would like to see a steady revenue stream for our homeless programs, but I've yet to see any kind of concrete idea of what they're going to do with that money. It's a lot of money. It is a risk when we've got, you know, pretty soft real estate market downtown. I mean, they're going to be apparently changing a bunch of LaSalle Street buildings into places to live because of the the businesses leaving downtown. So that's not something that we can just automatically discount 
as business people being whiny, I think. It's something that we do have to be concerned about. And as Eric pointed out, those of us who don't have million dollar homes, it is going to trickle down in the rents, etc. So it would be kind of nice to know what they are thinking about doing concretely with that money. And you raise a really good point that I don't think I've seen them specify that it will definitely go for Chicagoans as opposed to migrants. One thing I thought was interesting, Bring Chicago Home, which is the group that's been pushing this, has a fact sheet on their website. And it said, with this money, and their their estimates are way higher than other people's, with this money, we could we could fund permanent affordable housing for 4,000 families, which is 8,000 individuals over the next 10 years. So that is a billion dollars to house at max 8,000 people. Uh, it's like $125,000 a person. You'd be better off just giving those people rent checks uh they could afford a very nice place with that so i think that's that's going to be another thing of just the city's fiscal um the city's spending generally right now the they, the city has not has only spent 15 percent of the federal money allocated for homelessness there's a great sun time story on this the city currently gives 75 million dollars in just fun money every year to aldermen to do whatever they want in the form of menu money how about we sweep all of that into homelessness if homelessness is such a big issue instead of hitting small business owners, right? Why should they get $75 million a year to to spend in their wards? Oh, it's because the mayor buys votes with that money. Like, let's be realistic about like a whole of government approach. How about everybody make sacrifices for, for homelessness funding? I'm trying to think of what Brandon Johnson would be saying about all of this right now. I've talked to him, I think, once about this. He hasn't been that available since the election, but I know he's addressed that. And I think he said that things like, what, what, Eric, any of you, what would you imagine Brandon Johnson would be saying right now to justify or to, to push back on this, that the businesses in Chicago benefit from being in Chicago and it's their turn to pay a higher percentage, a share for the, the better treatment of people who aren't so fortunate? I mean, is that... Is that the logic of this? How do you justify this? This is not a 10% tax, you know. The talk about higher taxes is a, you know, it's a meme, it's a catchphrase. But he's actually lowering the taxes on homes under a million. There is a tax already. It's three quarters of a percent. It will go down to 0.6% under a million, 2% for a million, a million and a half. Right. So... It is an increase, but it's still not, you know, on a million dollars, 2% is not um, uh, going to break a, a commercial or entity, I wouldn't think. And then over a million and a half, it's, uh, it's uh, 3%. So, I, you know, this is not everybody's screaming can't raise taxes. It's not a jolt. It's a an increase, but not a jolt. And the city does not have enough money to do the things that need to be done. It has to come from somewhere. It is. It is a, a progressive tax in that in that oh. uh, it, the the first million dollars is taxed at a certain rate, and then the next increment is taxed at the higher rate, and so on. It's not like as soon as you go a dollar over a million, all of a sudden it, it jumps up. The um, <clears throat> the question I have though is that when this was originally proposed, it was exactly as I as I said, it was like that uh, was going to jump up to that percentage over a million as soon as you got to a, a one million dollars and one penny, and and that estimate was a hundred million dollars, and then suddenly they changed it all around and they lowered the tax on all the lower on the lower priced properties and the estimate was still a hundred million dollars. I've never seen the math that they've done on this, whether it whether it really adds up or not. And this is the kind of thing that's going to come out in this referendum, certainly the campaign. That was unclear too. Maybe you all have an answer to this, but will the buyers and sellers both then pay it seemed to me like when we were talking about it, it wasn't clear if some of the people who are buying homes that cost less than a million dollars and therein lies a lot of savings for the sellers are the buyers going to pick up a percent of what was lost there i don't know if that question makes sense but i have the answer for you okay i literally wrote this down yesterday i want to make sure I get this has been nagging me ever since they proposed it and i never got a good answer these these will be paid by the buyer so transfer taxes have a seller's portion and a buyer's portion. But I think 
people distinguishing it on those lines are kind of splitting hairs because ultimately if it's on the buyer side, you're taking that into account when you're bidding on the house. Like ultimately the seller kind of like both sides kind of pay it. It washes out anyway, but technically it's a, a buyer tax, but that affects the sales price. And I guess I think, you know, any of us who have bought property, we live in a house that we had to negotiate and there's, you know, all kinds of factors. There's going to be repairs. You split the cost of the major repairs that are due or you push it back on one. You know, that's all part of negotiation. I just don't think it's going to exactly break the bank of anyone who has a million dollar property. It has to come from somewhere. Look at our streets. Some And 8,000 is, you know, I wish the number was bigger, but something else will fund the next 8,000. But if you... It just but, has to be more focus on the needs of the city. My friend David Hochberg does a radio show here and comes on a lot of our shows. And he said, this is just going to push those property owners and those businesses out of the city rather than gather more. You're just going to alienate the very people that you're imagining you're going to get the money from. I don't know how people make those decisions or how onerous $20,000 on $2 million is. They say that about the uh, raising the minimum wage, too. Well, now you're going to lose businesses, you know, and and yet statistically, that is not what happens that people have more employment security, they uh, employee security, if that's the right phrase, that is stable, stable workforce. People give them more sick days and they're more productive. There's always this outcry. I would contend if you have a business that people who say my business won't be viable if I have to pay more or if I have to pay some tax the city needs, you don't have a viable business. Did you have people who don't have a viable lifestyle working for you? Let's leave that topic. I'm watching the clock here, guys. And I did want to get to what you wrote, Marge, in the Sun-Times. As a Jew, I want to defend Israel, but I cannot justify the destruction in Gaza. It's a painful time, uh, you know, for anyone uh, who, for anyone who is Jewish, anyone who cares about humanity in general. You don't have to be Muslim, Palestinian, or Jewish to feel the pain right now. Uh, There's a story in the New York Times today. They interviewed Hamas leaders who made it clear this is exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to call attention to the Palestinian plight, and uh, they don't want a two-state solution. They want to wipe Israel out and take the whole territory. And they were a little gleeful about how successful the October 7 attack was. They got better access than they thought. The Israeli defense, for some reason, wasn't what was expected, and they were able to kill more Jews than they planned. And did they not also, if we're talking about the same New York Times reporting, deny that they were killing civilians? They said that these Hamas leaders, that in fact their targets were, and many of the people that they killed were Israeli soldiers, that they weren't just indiscriminately slaughtering civilians, which clearly seems to be the case. What's the Mm -hmm. reaction been from your piece? And what did you say about Benjamin Netanyahu in your piece? Well, I think he's the wrong leader. Uh, for the time. And I think, you know, put yourself in this place. Uh, what if we reelected Trump? What would the world's view of the United States be? And how much support would we be getting uh, for our foreign policy if we walked down that road again? And I know the MAGA people think that we were more respected and feared under Trump. There's some fear about what he might do. But Netanyahu is the leader that Israel chose, not by a huge margin, and there's the parliamentary process, and I understand all that, but he compounded uh, negative feelings by his rhetoric out of the box. He showed no compassion uh, for all lives, uh, Palestinian lives as well uh, as the Jewish civilians. It, it was horrific what was done. And it seemed like, just like with 9-11, there was an opportunity for leadership to build public sentiment and support around that horror. Why aren't we, uh, why is the call for a free Palestine river to the sea, as 
as upsetting as that is uh, to Jews, why is that a louder cry than free the hostages? When we saw how the hostages were taken, the brutality of it. But the but the responses I get from my op-ed, there are many non-secular Jews like myself who still feel the strong affinity. I grew up with family dinner table conversation about Israel and how important Israel is to the diaspora. Um, and could we go someday? My mother always wanted to go, never did. My children went and fulfilled something that mattered to my mother. And that that's deep in me, though I don't go to synagogue services. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I did, it would be humanistic because I see myself leading with those values. And I got a lot of supportive comments, but also those uh, who believe that a ceasefire is harmful to Israel. I, you know, it's a conundrum. If I had a good answer for this, I wouldn't be the only one who had it and we would be at peace. It's obviously, you know, uh, so challenging and so fraught with emotion. But the unintentional, there's intentional anti-Semitism right now, um, but there's that unintentional, uh, casual comments about river to the sea or or, uh, Palestinian freedom. I support a two-state solution, but there's a lot of unintentional hurt in this country and around the world as anti-Semitism rises and as Israel leads with a bombardment that's painful to watch and hard to support. Well, it's possible to make statements in support of the people of Palestine without being anti-Semitic. Absolutely. I think I just made one. Trust me, I'm not disagreeing with you, but that's... I I watch all these rallies on TV, and I think I support the people who are rallying uh, around the Israeli cause, and then I support the people that are rallying around the Palestinian cause, and then I find myself getting angry at the people that are rallying around the Israeli cause, and then I get mad at the people that are rallying around the Palestinian cause. Uh, I probably shouldn't say Palestinians so much as that that gets conflated with Hamas and that kind of muddies my point but I guess just watching TV these days I feel myself torn don't throw that off as a side comment because the Palestinian people I think have a righteous cause and I think the Israeli people do too I don't like the Israeli leadership Hamas is frightening and I don't like the leadership of either contingent, but I want the people of both to have what they deserve. It's such a conundrum for people just like you, Marge. One of my very best friends um, is just like you. She's uh, she's progressively culturally Jewish, um, was actually recently president of her Reformed temple, and she got a ticket to go to the march, but ended up not going because even though she obviously supports Israel, she is so conflicted, obviously, about Western Bank settlements and whether there should be this attack in Gaza to begin with, that she just couldn't quite bring herself to even go, even after buying the ticket. It's it's really tough. The anti-Semitism is real internationally and nationally and locally. Mm-hmm. The thing is that, they, that it's almost impossible to have much of an opinion on this issue without really getting getting heavily criticized from the other side, whatever that might be, uh, other than something really anodyne like, well, I wish the killing would stop um, and that they could find peace. Uh, when you get beyond that, you get, <clears throat> I mean, even calls for a ceasefire, which seems like, like, let's stop killing people in hospitals and letting little babies die out out of the out of the incubators and try to see if we can resolve this in some other way you still get a lot of pushback on something like that and i just as as someone who is here in chicago never been to the middle east and and not really a student of that conflict uh that's kind of as far as i can go in terms of what 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 i say i tend to I tend to support the idea of a two-state solution. Uh, I know it's it's pretty complicated. People say that it's been offered before to the Palestinians; they've turned it down. Other people say, "Well, that the offer that was made to them was unacceptable." And you know, 
I don't know. I just know that that people who are who are really steeped in this and have tried to find a solution for what seventy five years have been unable to. Well, when you see the video this week of what happened at the hospital, you see those babies pulled out of incubators, and you get very angry at the tactics of the Israelis because look of what they've done to this hospital and look at the peril they put these children in. But then this week we've also seen a lot of embedded video where the reporters were able to go with the IDF and you see the weapons and the command centers buried beneath the hospital so clearly Hamas was staging there so okay now how do we score the siege of the hospital then I I can't even make up my mind about the whole question of the ceasefire I would never get in anyone's face about it one way or the other because it's so hard to say but the people who are arguing that Israel is correct in not doing a ceasefire. I understand their argument that it does give a terrorist group, Hamas, time, valuable time to regroup and could end up simply lengthening the whole conflict and thus costing even more lives down the line by giving them the opportunity to shoot off more rockets, regroup so that they can perform more terrorist attacks. As you know, the Hamas leader last week, specifically when he was interviewed, said that they want to keep doing as many October 7th style attacks as they can. He specifically said over and over again. So it's hard for me to argue that Israel does not need to completely eradicate them. Um, And then you come back to babies being pulled out of incubators. I'm going to take us then just to one last thing. The funding bill that passed the Congress, the House, by a vote of 336 to 95, passed a bill to fund the government in sort of two tranches, pushed by Speaker Mike Johnson. Uh, The Democrats voted for it, and many Republicans voted for it. And it will not include aid to Israel, as I understand it, or Ukraine. Doesn't it remind you of the very bill that led to Kevin McCarthy's ouster. And don't you get the feeling that Mike Johnson would have been one of those guys who would have voted against this sort of thing when Kevin McCarthy put it up, but now that he had to figure out a way, he's come up with something very similar to what McCarthy would have done. Um, Eric, I seem to keep starting with you here, but I haven't heard from you in a couple of minutes. What was your thought about that? You didn't hear from you didn't hear from Austin about Israel. I noticed he, he kept his he kept quiet about that. Well, so, Austin, uh, was there anything else you wanted to say about <laughs> that round of conversation? I I, I think um, Marge is right that Netanyahu and his administration has undermined the credibility of the Israeli government in only going after Hamas. And you see officials, not just like crazy people on the street where it's like we interviewed some random Trump supporter in Mississippi and they said something crazy, right? You see officials in the government calling to erase Gaza or or nuke it or mass extermination, right? And the reality is that you've had 40 days of war, right? I think it's for today is probably the 40th day. There have been, I think, 100 U.N. workers killed. There's more than 11,000 Palestinians killed, including more than, you know, around half of those being children. But few, not none, few Hamas fighters captured and low numbers eliminated. At a certain point, that is a that kind of indiscriminate killing fuels hate toward Israel around the world. Um, I And I, I think... Ultimately, that is Hamas's goal. So, I, I, in my opinion, it has only it has only it has only played into the hands of Hamas the the both the rhetoric and and now increasingly the actions of of the Israeli government. So Netanyahu walked right into it. Yeah, and, and it's not as though that's feet. a new thing. I mean, he he's had that rhetoric for a long time, and I think this is now different because we live in a world where. There are a billion Muslim people on social media, for example, and it can seem crass and cynical and cold to talk about what the PR or or communications kind of battle that's happening right now. But that is increasingly how actual wars play out. And that is a war that Israel, I don't think, is is winning. And and I think it will cause a, 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 a though that rhetoric and action will cause a shift in that and, and perhaps a permanent one. I, did, I was just trying to look up while, while Austin was talking whether Johnson did 
uh, in fact, vote for the compromise that McCarthy put forward. Oh yeah, uh, and I couldn't I couldn't find that uh, just my quick googling around. Yeah, actually, I said really it's the sort of thing he would have voted against, and I could have looked it up myself. The story I'm reading it doesn't say, but I heard somebody yeah. else reference that, and I thought, yeah, that sounds about right. And in fact, afterwards, then he did. Uh, endorsed Donald Trump for president. Not that that's the same thing, but he was trying to maybe put a Band-Aid on this deal that he made with the Democrats to say, don't worry, I'm on the team here. Don't worry, I'm still all for MAGA or at least Donald Trump and the Republican cause, but we've got to get the government funded by Friday. So let's do this. Well, I did I did see some reporting that there are some heavily conservative members of the House who are inclined to give him a pass this time because mm-hmm. he's new and this is an urgent situation. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why they're giving him a pass, given that they didn't give McCarthy a pass, but maybe they, they trust his conservative bona fides more than they trust McCarthy's. Weren't they already mad at McCarthy? He'd already had these run-ins, physical or not, based on the physical one this week. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that he'd built up a lot of animosity and they were uh, gleeful about not giving him a pass, I think. But Johnson is new. But I, I would just point out, just stop and think about the root of this whole issue and conversation is that the evil thing that they have been doing is bipartisanship. And I, I don't understand because statistically, everybody wants Congress to get along and be productive. I don't know if you've pulled on that, Austin, but other people have pulled on it. And that is what the voters want. They want a productive Congress. They want people to work more congenially across the aisle and and yet that's what will get you fired as a GOP speaker because how dare you work with Democrats and they say that and we all go oh yeah that's going to cost him and this is only a temporary fix right i mean the two separate dates now are january 19th which isn't that far away and february 2nd and then they're going to have to find still more funding to keep the government running so maybe uh, they've kicked the can down the road, but only for a very short period of time. About your reference to sort of the physical confrontation with McCarthy, where he bumped into a colleague in the uh, hall, what happened in the Senate was amazing this week. At a hearing of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, Republican Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma tried to start a physical fight with one of the witnesses, the president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters Union, Sean O'Brien. O'Brien had previously, in a tweet, made fun of the senator's height. The two of them disagreed on some issues. Now the one guy is testifying before the other guy at this committee hearing in the Senate. And then he said, yeah, stand your butt up. Let's go. I appreciate your demeanor today. It's quite different. But after you left here, you got pretty excited about the keyboard. In fact, you tweeted at me... One, two, three, four, five times. And let me read what the last one said. Um, it said, greedy CEO who pretends like he's self-made. Sir, I wish you was in the truck with me when I was building my plumbing company. Myself and my wife was running the office because I sure remember working pretty hard and long hours. Pretends like he's self-made. What a clown. Fraud. Always has been always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me. Any place, any time, cowboy. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, hold, stop it. Is that your solution? Every poll. No, no, sit down. Sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. Oh, okay, okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Mr. Hold Finn. it. Hold it. If Hold we can, no, I have the mic. Said. I'm sorry. This is Hold what it. he said. You'll have your time. Okay. Can I respond? Oh, no, you can't. <laughs> this is a hearing. And God knows the American people have enough of contempt but Congress, let's not I don't make like it worse. Thugs and you, you have, and you have, I don't like you because you just described yourself. Hold it. Bernie Sanders, of all people, reminiscent of Dr. Strangelove's You Can't Fight in the War Room, said, no, we can't have fighting in the Senate chambers. People feel bad enough about the Congress the way it is. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. I wanted him to just say, okay. 
Go ahead. Finish it off. You two want to, you know, you could be Zuckerberg and you could be Elon Musk. You go, boys, if that's what you want. But he didn't let it play out that way. Brandon, actually, our two friends, Brandon and John, had good tweets about this. So Brandon Pope said, uh, we have the most unhinged politicians in U.S. history. And John Hansen said, well, let me tell you about the caning of Senator Charles Sumner when a member of the House of Representatives entered the Senate chamber and savagely beat a senator <laughs> into unconsciousness and linked to that story, which happened in 1856. No, so it no. always is important to remember in these things like politics has always been crazy. This is, it's not actually a new level of cra- of crazy in historical context. It may even be considered mild. Uh, that said, it you know, it's completely ridiculous uh irresponsible behavior and i was glad that bernie sanders was the featured guest extra in that play <laughs> it, was, it was very funny but you know every now and then like on the tv news you'll see the story of uh in some legislative body in some other country in the world and they're throwing chairs you know they're just like climbing over each other uh so i guess you're right austin it didn't rise to that level so it could have been worse right i guess so Mullen said if he didn't rise to the challenge, his constituents would be disappointed. They (laughs) expect me to do this. I'm doing like doing exactly what they want. Uh, And and that may be the case. Isn't he a mixed martial arts fighter anyway? Doesn't he have some sort of training in um, wrestling or combat or something like that? I'm pretty sure that he does. So uh, any last words that any of you want to get in here edgewise? I would throw out a plug for... uh people to maybe email the Chicago Landmarks Commission about the Century and Consumers buildings on South State Street. They're at State and Adams. They're probably two buildings that most people don't know of by name, but they're on the west side of the street. They're just really pretty white terracotta uh, buildings, wonderful examples of the Chicago you know, School of Architecture um, of the early skyscrapers that the city used to be known for, but we've lost so many of them. And um, the Landmarks Commission will be voting, I think, next month on officially whether or not to make them landmarks. But even that will not necessarily save them because they're owned by the federal government, which can just override that, and they want to tear them down. What, are they going to sell uh, them? They the, want to, do they want the money? What are they, or are they going to rebuild on there? Does the government um, have a plan the for thing it? Is, the thing is, right west is the federal um, building and uh, federal court building also. And so they had bought them uh, back in the early 2000s, like 2005 or six, uh, through about security concerns post 9-11. Um, and Preservation Chicago, which is a wonderful preservation group here, has really gone above and beyond finding ways that the building could be saved. They found one developer for it, um, and that got turned down and that they have, they have cooked up this whole new thing to make it into a collaborative archive, um, for a lot of different depositories so that there wouldn't be so much people living there and working there. So less of a security concern for people shooting or something at the federal buildings, you know, but the federal government needs to go along with it. And I might add, uh, from my understanding, it's our Senator Dick Durbin who earmarked $52 million to tear down the buildings. So actually an email to Dick Durbin would be a good idea too. And why is this on your radar? I'm, I'm, I just love old buildings. I'm, I'm, I'm big into architecture stuff. Well, the way to save it would be to tell them that you're going to put pickleball courts in there. That, that's oh, like there you the, go. the solution <laughs> for all unused space in the city. Kate and Marge yeah. and Austin and Eric, I think that's all the time we've got today. We're produced by Pete Zimmerman, the Mincing Rascals. Thank you all for being part of the pod this week, and we'll drop another one on you next week. Thanks. Good Thanks, to meet you, Marge. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Good to yeah. meet you, too. See you in Austin. Thanks, you guys. Bye. So long. Bye. Bye. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. <laughs>